You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Hey everybody, welcome back into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to continue with the great news that we've had as our connection with Amazon is growing. That's right, if you're an Amazon shopper, here's all you got to do. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner. You do your regular Amazon shopping, and guess what else? You get to help out some great veterans organizations because every time you go to hazardground.com and click on the Amazon banner and do your shopping that way, we are going to donate a portion of the proceeds to one of the veterans charities that's been featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So it doesn't take anything for you to do other than your normal Amazon shopping to get done what you need to get done and be a part of something bigger and help out some great veterans charities. Again, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner. One more thing before we get started, also wanted to give a quick thank you and shout out to all of those who have left ratings and reviews on iTunes. They help so much with getting the word out about the podcast and moving Hazard Ground up in the rankings amongst other podcasts and ultimately getting these great stories out to the masses. We read every one of your reviews and we appreciate them so very, very much. So keep them coming. It's great to see the podcast continues to grow and is getting out there and helping inspire others. We've had several people come tell us they've recommended it to coworkers, classmates, friends, and even mental health professionals as a means to help with the treatment of PTSD. So we can't thank everyone enough who continues to support this show. So a quick shout out and thanks to a few individuals, and we'll give you their handles here. VTD98, Charlie Brown 12345, Team Tennyson, J Good 22, 804 Hokey, R3322, Rye Tom Go, and they call me Memphis Reigns. Thank you for all of your reviews. Keep them coming, spread the word, and make sure you tell a friend. This week, very special guests. I am very excited to talk to them both. You'll know them if you go to Fight or Die, that's O-A-R, fightordie.org, because, well, there's a team of four veterans who are going to row across the Atlantic Ocean, and joining us today on the Hazard Ground Podcast is the leader of that team. His name is Alex Evans. He's a former staff sergeant and a former paratrooper and a British Army recce asset. And joining him is Dr. Jacob Hyde, who is going to be monitoring their trip from the start to finish. He is also a former Marine Corps Navy corpsman who deployed to Iraq and eventually became a psychologist. And now he's monitoring them as they go across the Atlantic Ocean. This is an incredible story, one we're very excited to tell. And we want to welcome both Alex Evans and Dr. Jacob Hyde to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. All right, let's start with you, Alex. Um, Before we get to how you came up with Fight or Die and and everything else, let's go back to the beginning of your military career. How'd you get in? Why'd you sign up? And and give us the circumstances. Well, so uh, I was going to college. Um, I was actually spending more time out of college than in college. So uh, it was time for for a change, time to do something positive. Um, and uh, honestly, needed needed some more discipline in my life, so um, we signed up, and I signed up, and um, uh, decided, hey, you know, I watched all the videos they had at MIPS, and uh, none of them really looked appealing except for infantry. So I signed up for infantry, and then went to infantry school, uh, then airborne school, then javelin school, and a couple schools. Ended up in the 82nd. Um, just just kind of uh, didn't want to do anything boring. Um, so uh, infantry is what it what it was. Did your parents have any issues with you quitting college? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, um, 
They did not. Uh, they did have inf- uh, issues with me joining the infantry, though. Oh, okay. Um, they 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 knew the um, they, they 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 knew the <laughs> they knew what was going on. I wasn't exactly getting the best getting the best marks. I was uh, spending too much time being a 19, 20 year old kid uh, rather than sticking my nose in the books. Um, so, uh, you know, made a decision to do something positive. Was it pre nine eleven or post nine eleven? Uh, that was, well, that was post 9-11. Um, I went to college in, uh, excuse me, it was pre-9-11. I went to college in 2000. Well, this is both. Uh, I was, it was right at 9-11, actually, uh, right afterwards. I decided to join the Army in 2004. Uh, I had gone to college pre-9-11 and then post-9-11 joined. So sort of the confusion there. No, well, the only reason I ask is just because, you know, obviously when you said your parents didn't want you to do the infantry, it's, I was wondering if it's because the likelihood of you going to war. Well, both of my parents are Vietnam, Vietnam era, uh, ah. you know, baby boomers. And my mother's, uh, my mother, uh, you know, had a, had a very good friend. It was her, um, it was actually her fiance back in the day uh, that um, didn't make it back. He was a, he was an Air Force PJ, um, ended up, um you know, uh, not just not coming back, um, you know, uh, K- MIA, KIA, um, you know, POW, it's any, in, in, in it's possible. So she had a real issue with any, anything associated with warfare. And for those listening, not familiar, an Air Force PJ, as in Papa, not DJ, is a pararescuing jumper, one of the more dangerous jobs in all of the Air Force. All right, so you sign up after 9-11, uh, and you, you do all the schools and everything else. You felt pretty comfortable that you were deploying fairly quickly? Um, well, you know, once you go through, you know, your, your basic and your infantry school, which, um, you know, really you learn, you learn everything when you get to your unit, but you know, you're, you're, you're kind of molded into a warfighter. So, you know, you've got all this training that you think you have already as a private, but you want to go use it. Right. So, you know, we were, um, you know, the, 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 the privates and the, the younger soldiers coming into this unit. I mean, we were more, we were more or less anxious, um, to, to, to head over. Uh, let's switch gears here and talk to uh, Jacob. Before you became Dr. Jacob Hyde, uh, psychologist, you were a Marine and a veteran of the Iraq War. How did you sign up and when was it? So, you know, school really wasn't going well for me either when I was about 19 years old. And, you know, the only thing I had really ever done well in my life besides be a punk was swim. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should start watching the news a little bit more and maybe I'll get more involved in the world and maybe I'll figure out something to do. So I started watching the news and it just happened to be 2004 when this really heated election where George W. Bush was running. I grew up in North Carolina and so I grew up fairly conservative, sheltered young man and thought that George Bush just sounded amazing. And all the things he was saying were so inspiring. And I thought, you know, he's saying we should go get the terrorists and he's saying we should go and essentially bring our brand of democracy to the world. And as a 19 year old kid from the South, that sounded really great. So (laughs) the only thing I had really ever done well was swim. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to be in the military, what do I do? And I thought, well, where can you go swim? And so I thought, oh, the Coast Guard. So the first place I went when I went to a recruiting station was straight into the Coast Guard office. And right, this was right around November when the election occurred. And the lady in the Coast Guard office said to me, sorry, we're not taking anybody else this year. We've got a quota. and We've already met it. And I looked at her just stupefied thinking, huh, 
you're full. I thought the military took anybody, but it just so happened it didn't. <laughs> so I thought, well, I guess I can't swim anywhere. And I didn't know that much about the military. And again, was a very sheltered kid who'd only ever really swam and not really thought about the military. So I didn't know there were other options for swimming other than the Coast Guard. But next door was the Navy office and the Marine Corps office. And for some reason, no one was in the Marine office. And so I just went in the Navy office and I thought, well, water's cool. I like water. Let me go in here. So I went in there, talked to these guys, and they told me about a job called being a hospital corpsman or a fleet marine force medic. And they told me I could work with the Marines. Maybe I'd get the chance to swim one day, but probably not. But I could work with the Marine Corps. I could go to cool places. I could sort of do fun things like help people, being a medic, and see the world with the Marine Corps. And I thought, well, that sounds like the best of a lot of different worlds. Sign me up. So a few days later, you know, I'm at the MEPS processing station doing the thing, and lo and behold, I end up in the Navy. So very similar to Alex, I think I was just lost at that point in my life. And I just joined the Navy thinking, well, I'll do this. This is cool. Turns out I had two grandfathers who were Army medics, and so being a medic was great. Um, you know, and I actually took to the job of being a medic really well. So I went through the school to be a medic and then got put in a Marine Corps unit for a while while I was waiting to go to Fleet Marine Force School to learn to be a Marine medic and really liked the unit I was in. It was 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. And while I was in school to learn to be a, a Marine medic or FMF school, I requested to go back to that unit. And I knew that unit had just gotten off deployment and I knew they were about to go back. And I requested anyway, number one, because I loved all the guys in that unit that I'd gotten to be around. And number two, I had nothing else to do. So I thought if they're going to deploy, I can't wait. I'd love to go instead of just sitting around. And so that was sort of my story and ended up in the Middle East. Turns out I was in Iraq at the same time as a lot of guys on this team. Oh, wow. And didn't, didn't know them. And so three of the four guys on this team and I were all in Iraq at the same time doing similar jobs and had had no idea that we would ever eventually meet. And so I think that was kind of serendipitous. But that's sort of how I got to where I am. And, you know, I didn't really truly finish college until I got out of the military. And then I went to graduate school. So I got off active duty in 2007 and I stayed in the reserves until 2012. So I stayed in the reserves while I went while I got an undergraduate degree. Then I went and got a doctorate degree all while in the reserves and then decided that I needed to keep working in this field. And that's how I got to where I am now. Wow, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, your parents had no issues with you joining? You know, at that time, I really didn't care what my parents said. And so I think Fair that enough. was part of the problem. And so I think I, I let them know that I was joining, and I kind of left it at that. And oh, by the way, you know, obviously, uh, people who are fans of this podcast, anybody who's been in the service long enough, any other branches, probably deployed at the same time as a whole bunch of other people that they didn't know they yeah. deployed with at the same time. just kind of happens that way. Um, Alex, back to you as far as uh, your career, uh, because you're no longer in the military right now. So, uh, when does it end? I know this is kind of abbreviated, but how many deployments do you do? When does it end? Why does it end? So I did, uh, I did two deployments I was in, well, unless you want to count Hurricane Katrina. So that was, uh, 05, went down to Hurricane Katrina relief. Um, and then went to, uh, went to Samara, Iraq in 2006, to 2007 and during that time frame is when um when my first sergeant came down and said hey you're you know pack some stuff you're going down to going down to uh, basra uh to uh to do this mission for the british and so i did uh let's see i did from august until november in samara november to april in basra then back from april april to 
um, October of that year back in Samara. So that was a 15 month deployment for me with the 82nd, uh, 2nd Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry. Yeah, I'm familiar with um, that unit. Um, let me ask you real quick though, <laughs> before you, before you go too far, when you told you were going to go work with a British unit, were you like, what the F? Like, how does this work out? I thought I was in the United States army. Right. Well, uh, one of the questions he asked me was, uh, okay, can, can you fly a Raven? Are you Raven qualified? And a Raven is a, uh, I thought he was going to uh, ask you, do you speak British? <laughs> fluently yeah you know, it, it took a while <laughs> but uh no, I, I flew a raven i was qualified to, to operate a, a um it's a 4.7 pound balsa wood aircraft that um you can fly out to about 10 kilometers uh ceiling at about 1800 feet so um you can kind of you, you can be pretty much anywhere in a city and uh provide ground truth and at the time you know 2006 and 7 this is this was the thing, right? Uh, state of the art kind of stuff. Um, and so you can provide ground truth. You can develop target packages. You can, you know, you, a number of things just with this one bird without being seen. Um, so it was a cool tool to have. And they had, uh, they had something called a Phoenix, but it took so many people to operate and it, it wasn't, it wasn't of the, the highest quality. So, you know, we were uh, tasked off to multinational coalition forces, Iraq, which is a, um, Good old a, MNCI. A yep. Yep. And so, um, you know, we were working with different, uh, different nationalities, the British, but the British, as you know, have, you know, the Fijians, uh, South Africans, and you have, uh, Nepalese, the Gurkha. And, uh, you know, so you get to meet people from, from all walks of life and work with these guys. And I'll tell you, they're, they're it, it was a, it was a blast meeting all these guys. Um, really good time with them, uh, while I was there. Uh, but so that's why, yeah, that's why I got, got tasked off to do that myself and, uh, five of the guys from battalion, from, from second battalion, 505th. Um, when you say battalion, I don't want to say battalion, like battalion. So, you know, get some ranger back guys out there, you know, make, make sure that gets qualified, gets, uh, clarified. That's what I'm looking for. But, uh, anyway, so that's, that's the reasoning for, for, uh, my British time was, was simply just the, uh just that asset that we had uh, to be able to, to use for them. A little inside humor here. Do you have to wear that uh, MNCI patch? Cause I remember walking around Iraq and we saw everybody who wore those things like those poor bastards, man, they, they must be miserable up there because all they did no. was sit around and do nothing. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. Uh, you know, the first, the first thing that was told, we, we got off a, was a C, was a C25 Sherpa uh, flying boxcar. I think it's right. C21 or C25. Uh, got off in Basra, meet our, you know, our first British RAF guys that were kind of taking us in and getting us down to uh, uh, Shadow Era, Basra North. And they just told us not to look American because there weren't any really Americans out there that were going to be anywhere other than APOD West, the big base. So, I mean, we just, we wear British, uh, British pants and t-shirts or, or just khakis and khakis and t-shirts and, you know, kind of relaxed grooming standards type type thing, but we didn't really wear uniforms at all. So that's awesome. I, I that was one of the things I enjoyed about the uh, the special forces lifestyle when I deployed with those guys. Uh, all that stuff was, but it was very work focused, you know. So it was like you didn't mind doing all the extra work because you got to do a little bit of, of creature comforts and you know, didn't have to worry about all the all the regular kind of, for lack of a better term, garrison activities that went on. Um, but you you know, you got to live a little bit of a different lifestyle. I, I enjoyed that. Right. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Um, as far as the lifestyle went, but they, they're indirect, they're indirect, um, indirect fire, um, you know, incoming into that base was pretty astronomical. Um, I mean, it was, it was roughly, uh, you know, roughly a quarter mile, um, you know, perimeter and 
about my time there, there were about 400 uh, rounds landing inside the camp, wow. uh, HE rounds. So you know, 107s, 57s, 60s, 82s, which is kind of weird. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we got, we got, we got hit pretty well with indirect. So after you finish your British time, um, what happens next and at what point in your career are you in? Well, so I go back to my unit, um, back in Samara, uh, finish that out, um, with, uh, two five Oh five. Um, and at that time, Samara, um, uh, Samara and Bakuba, just pretty much central Iraq and the surrounding areas of Baghdad were particularly, uh, hot. So it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting thing to come back to and then to be extended after a year to 15 months, uh, during the surge. I mean, it was, um, it was, it was an interesting experience. I mean, um, you know, just being anywhere like that for 15 months straight. Um, so, I mean, we, we finished that one out, um, and, uh, then made it back to Bragg. I did reenlist for JPAC when I was over there and it's joint, joint, uh, personnel, uh, accounting command. And basically what they do is they go to, um, Southeast Asia for the most part. Um, and, the 11 Bravos that are attached basically are um, personal security guys for forensic pathologists. And so you basically find POW MIAs and uh, um, bring them back and repatriate them to their families. Wow. And <laughs> so when I reenlisted, I had a report date uh, of October and we got extended through October and then you're out processing and all that. So I missed my report date. I ended up going to Hawaii, but when I got there, I had a problem with my orders, I was, you know, no, wait a minute. This says uh, HHC two three five infantry. Yeah, it's your orders. Well, I I went needs of the army because I missed my report date. <laughs> so what? I was back in the infantry. So I was yeah. So I was back in the infantry, second battalion, thirty fifth infantry. Uh, after reenlisting for JPAC, uh, and I was back in Samara that year. <laughs> I was back in Samara at the same at the same fob, Bob Brassfield Mora. I was I was in the same fob. Uh, that year so i got uh let's see i got there in march of 08 and i was deploying back to brassfield more uh, i believe october of 08 so wow. that's how quick that happened yeah that's unreal <laughs> yeah. that must have been year. like a gut punch man oh it was it, it was <laughs> and my first sergeant was given the briefing on, you know, where the chow hall is located and where the, you know, laundry facilities are located and all that on, on these, on these pads. It was, an, it was an old blown up granary. Um, so in the winter, in the rainy season, you have all this old grain and it, I mean, just smells high heaven. Yeah. But, um, so he, he's briefing the, briefing the company on, on where these things are located. And I could not, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, man, I know this place pretty well. <laughs> so so how does, back to the same club. How does it end for you? When do you get out? Um, so when I, when I decided to get out, um, you know, basically the, the, the army, the army as a whole, and I guess the military, uh, I can't speak for the Navy, the Marine Corps, any of those, but um, it was, it was kind of starting to change a little bit. And, um, you know, as an infantry guy, um, you know, I, I always had really high standards of my soldiers, and I'm, I'm not saying they don't anymore. But it, it was um, it was just a little bit, a little bit different um, uh, climate, I guess you could say, with the the way the way training was conducted, um, the, the the types of training you would do, um, 
you know, I can remember being at Fort Bragg and doing live fire exercises at range 63, you know, like it was nothing. And, you know, it just it seemed like there was a lot of red tape and it seemed like, you know, my toolkit was being taken away to where I couldn't you know, protect my soldiers just because of the, the, a changing, evolving army. Right. And sure. it's I'm not I'm not saying it's anybody's fault or anything like that. It just it it, it just wasn't working for me anymore. Um, I guess I, I wasn't old school, but I guess I was old school enough to, you know, be set in my ways um, as to as to how. You know, you take soldiers down range or how I would or how I'd been taught to. And it, it, it had changed quite a bit to where um, I didn't know if I was ready to make that that ad- adaptation and head, uh, you know, head to RC East with these guys or, or you know, something like that. And uh, I, I just didn't, uh, I don't know, I, I, I just uh, I felt like uh, um, just uh, just felt like it was it was my time, um, you know love the army still love the army um you know i'm not not trying to that's not saying bad about about the army at all um it just it just changed and evolved in a way that that i wasn't i want to ask both of you a question we'll start with you jacob um but when you look back on your military service and your deployments and everything well particularly your deployments what stands out to you the most uh and you you as a medic jacob must have seen a whole bunch of different things but what kind of stays with you that's a great question. You know, a few things stay with me. I think the first thing that stays with me was my first real exposure to really extreme heat. And I know that it sounds weird, but I had never in my life been to a place so hot as Iraq was. I stepped off that plane in Al-Assad and it was like in the 130s. And I thought, holy shit, where am I? And how am I going to survive this? And I wasn't scared of the bullets or the bombs. I was scared of the heat. It was so hot. That's one of the big things that still sticks with me to this day. And, you know, honestly, that exposure to the heat and the way that it made me feel actually drove me to my job today. So my job is to understand and try to better figure out how humans perform in isolated, confined, and extreme environments. And it certainly was an extreme environment to be in 130-degree heat. And so that's one of the biggest things that stuck with me and actually led me into this career was getting really hot my first day in Iraq and just hating it. The other thing I think that really sticks with me from being in the Middle East was my third day on my first deployment. And it was, you know, sitting around knowing that we were about to go and do a really serious job. And then all of a sudden, three little girls who had been shot all over their bodies got rolled in front of me and it just became real. And life for me changed that day. I forgot about how hot it was. I forgot about how shitty the situation was. I forgot about all the things except for these girls right in front of me. And that's where I think my life really changed was that day. And that I think that's what really has stuck with me throughout the years from, from my time in the military. No one mission, no one deployment, no one person in the military. But really that third day when those girls got put in front of me, that's what kind of defines my military experience, I think. Let me just stay with this for a second. Did that make it, was it, was it just kind of the casualty of war, so to speak, that, that made that so ingrained in you or was it, you know, because it was small children or uh, just give me a little more. You know, I, you know, I was 19 years old and not that intelligent of a kid and certainly had never really been exposed to terrible tragedy in my life. And to that point, all I knew again was that George Bush had to be right. And then I was there to defend freedom and bring democracy to the world. I didn't know I was going to be there to patch up little girls who had been shot for no good reason. And so I think that's why it sticks with me is I knew what I was going to do as a medic and I had done it before. 
But now I have three innocent casualties who were not war fighters. That was my first casualties to deal with in Iraq. That sucked. And that's, I think, just what really continues to stick with me is that that's when I understood that the world was a whole different place than I had grown up knowing and that the world was never going to be the same for me. Not, not to get all existential, but you know, it's funny how experience and the idea of experience, you can't ever prepare for it. Cause, and Alex, you can speak to this for all the training that you did, right? For as much as you go through all the training, inevitably in combat, we always see something that we never prepared for. It just happens that way. And, and the idea of gaining experience, we all think, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out as we go along. And then something happens and you go, well, there was no playbook for this. There was no manual for this. So uh, it, it's a pretty lucid point, uh, Jacob, that you bring up, to say the least. But, Alex, uh, let's go to you on what stays with you from your, from your time. Well, uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, just uh, like, like you said, dude. Yeah, you, you don't expect a lot of things to happen. And, you know, uh, I think we, we probably all, you know, had, had an experience where, you know, you, you weren't expecting something and, and maybe, you know, one of your one of your buddies, uh, you know, got killed or, um, you know, you, you had a had a situation to where you saw something you weren't expecting. Um, one thing that really sticks with me, I think, um, that I still, I, I was just thinking about this. I just drove across the country. That still affects me. Um, they started in placing the, the, uh, the insurgency sort of in placing, uh, covert and deep buried IEDs. And I mean, we're talking about tw- it's like 1200 pounds of HME or homemade explosive. And they would lit- literally leave, you know, 70 foot wide and 12 foot deep craters across, uh, you know, the main highway in SR Tampa. And, uh, one day, um, a Navy EOD team rolled over this and, um, you know, that the culvert went up and it, it, it literally lifted a jersey, which is a, a huge armored vehicle, you know, off the ground, flipped it on its top and killed everybody, but one guy inside. And, you know, uh, these guys are, these, these, you know, Bo, uh, one of the teammates, you know, one of these guys is one of his, one of his really close friends. And I'm sure this sticks with him too, but just knowing that, knowing that team and knowing the, you know, just the gravity of those things that happen and the fact that you can't, you can't see that enemy, um, is, um, it's kind of crazy. And just knowing that if you roll over one of those, I mean, you're, you're pretty much just done. Um, you know, then we had, you know, we had times where, you know, there were, there were firefights and we weren't expecting to, to lose guys. I mean, we had a, I mean, one of our guys got this distinguished service cross. Uh, his name was Christopher Corvo. Um, you know, there was a, a sniper hide that got, you know, got, uh, got compromised. And, uh, um, you know, we lost, lost a couple friends on, on, on that. Um, I was really, really close with, uh, with Tracy Willis, which is one of the guys, uh, Corvo, I was up on that rooftop alone and, uh, defended Willis and Morley's bodies with terrorists coming up the, coming up the east, uh, I guess it was the east and west stairwells uh, until some Kiowas saw it and QRF got, got brought in and, um, you know, but just, just stuff like that, man. Just remember those days. And we got called in uh, early in that morning. We were on, uh, on down cycle and um, uh, Tracy used to be in our company and uh, he's now done HHC and, um, uh, and, and scalpel tune. And, 
um, you know, uh, Staff Sergeant Widener comes in one day and says, hey, guys, you know, I got some bad news. And we were never expecting Tracy. And said, Tracy got killed this morning. And, you know, it hit us like a brick. We Not something we expected to hear. And, you know, again, we were we were in our in our extension time at that point. Um, you know, we we had just just hit our extension time. Um, we we still had months to go after this, and it had already been a pretty pretty rough year in Saladin. Um, so, I don't know those. I still think about those types of things all the time. I still think about those guys all the time, all the time. Um, you know, and I mean, yeah, it's just um, those things you weren't expecting, and. You know, things you weren't expecting to, I mean, it, 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 you hit the nail on the head with the unexpected. I mean, um, that's, that's pretty much what I got. I mean, I've got so many memories. We can stay, out, we can stay on this yeah. podcast all, <laughs> all day long. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, that is a, a smooth transition because what you have chosen to do, Alex, as far as rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, and I want to try to do this chronologically if we can, just for the listener's sake and understanding all this. I, I'm curious as to how you two cross paths for this whole thing, but is is a, a better way to do this? Ask how you came up with the idea, because the, the connective tissue here for those listening is you guys are doing this for veterans' mental health and, and for um, you know not only the mental health, but the, the cognitive, behavioral, physical health of, of U.S. military and veteran personnel. And that's a, a big part of why you're doing this. And as we talk about the memories and the mental stuff that stays with you, um, I, I'm curious as to where you came up with the idea or why you decided to take part in this venture across the Atlantic Ocean, which is called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Um but give me some more background on that, Alex, please. Okay, uh, sure. Um, so when I was with the British, uh, the British Army, it was the, the Staffordshire and, and Royal Green Jackets regiments, which are now two rifles. But uh, Rory McKenzie was uh, was a medic in that unit, and we became really good friends immediately. And uh, one day uh, in early 2007, uh, he got hit with EFP or explosively formed projectile. And I mean, this, um, those, those, uh, those devices will pretty much eat through any type of reactive armor that we have. Um, it killed the guy sitting across from him and, uh, took his leg off and you know, he was in a coma for, for several, uh, you know, several weeks and, um, ended up, you know, having kind of a, a rough transition back. You know, for the first the first several you know, several months coming off, say, oh, you're above the knee amputee. Well, um, you might never walk again. Prosthetics are tough for above the knee amputees. You know, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of pain. Um, and so he gets a, he he gets into his prosthetic, and he's got some other buddies that are also you know above the knee amputees and amputees and you know, other servicemen, and they rode in the, they rode in this exact challenge in 2012 as amputees and other servicemen. So there are three amputees, one of which was a double amputee and two able-bodied service members. And, um, they completed the challenge and, um, they raised 1.4 million pound, um, for various, um, various charities, various military charities in the UK. And I just, uh, you know, we, we still, Rory and I still talk all the time, but I just thought that was so inspirational to people that are meaning to do adaptive sports and people that are meaning to, to affect veterans and, you know, in that, in that sort of way. And, um, you know, just show these guys that, 
you know, you're you're not done, man. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want in the world, and there's nothing holding you back at all. And I think it's I think it's positive to show show guys that are going through you know mental struggles or any other type of struggle, what, whatever type of struggle that are, there is that. You know there is a finish line, and you and you can win here. Let's do this, and to show that through our actions that we can, you know, we can give these guys strength and give them hope, and they can be on the team next year. You know, uh, they can they can do this. This is not a one off project. This is a this is a charitable organization. We're going to do this every year. So that's kind of that's kind of the connective tissue as far as I'm concerned with with the race and coming up with, you know the American team here and, you know, Bryant and Bo and Chris, uh, I was in two five Oh five with Bo. Okay. I was going to ask you next, how you recruited the rest of the team. <laughs> right. Right. So I was in two five Oh five with Bo. Bo was the guy that I just mentioned, mentioned that was, um, that was good friends with chief Wade. Um, he was an infantry guy. Uh, he stayed in two five Oh five and went back to, uh, back to Iraq in uh, 08, 09 after that deployment, um, to, uh, solder. Um, or Baghdad, they operated in the solder a little bit. I can't, um, I can't remember entirely, but, uh, Bryant, uh, Bo and I met Bryant at a Christmas party, uh, in Denver for oil and gas. We were all oil and gas professionals at some point. Uh, and immediately Bryant's like, well, yeah, man, let's do this. Um, Bryant's a 20th special forces, uh, guys, retired major, uh, and he was he was in, and um, you know he's been he's just been killing it ever since. Uh, Chris Coos, uh, Bo, and Chris uh, knew each other from Palo, Wyoming, and uh, and Cody, Wyoming. And they were friends. And Chris is a, a former Ranger Bat guy, former uh, former Special Forces guy, so first Ranger Bat and first Special Forces group. Uh, and he pretty much the same thing. Oh yeah, let's do this. And so. That's that's kind of that's kind of how we uh, how we recruited there. It just came together. Jacob, do you ever wonder uh, in your psychology degree when guys are like, yeah, let's roll across the Atlantic Ocean, that there's something wrong with them? Because as I sit here and listen, as a normal person, they go, yeah, that's probably not normal. Yeah, it's a good uh, <laughs> right off the cuff. It sounds like a crazy idea, right? Because it, it pretty much is a crazy idea. And Alex loves to say you can't just do a 5K anymore. You got to really do something to get people's attention. But <laughs> sure, yeah, it's a good point. After you spend five minutes talking to every one of the guys on this team, you realize that they would do anything to make this world better. And if, you know, a 5K doesn't cut it, leave it to these four Army veterans to figure out a way to get on the ocean, even though they've never been in a boat before. Right. <laughs> leave it to these four Army dudes to figure out how to do something pretty extreme. So it does sound pretty crazy on the cuff, but these are four guys that truly can accomplish it. Well, and, you know, I joke, but, you know, part of your – uh, psychological degree concentration is in behavioral medicine. So, and and you're at the University of Denver, part of the Graduate School of Professional Psychology, the Strum Specialty in Military Psychology. You're the faculty director of that. Um, so, kind of give me how you got into that, uh, and then the connection to how you guys ended up linking up for Fight or Die. Great question. So, after I finished graduate school, I went and did a residency at the VA or the Veterans Affairs at the VA Center of Excellence in Primary Care Education. And of all places that is, is in Boise, Idaho. So I lived in Idaho for a year and a half to do that. And then I ended up doing a postdoctoral fellowship down at the Phoenix VA, the infamous Phoenix VA. Mm. But I will say it was a couple years after that scandal, but boy, was there still linger some lingering after effects around there at the time. But luckily nothing that my program or anything I was lucky to not be involved in. 
Um, and so after graduate school, you know, behavioral medicine really was my background and where I was heading. And so I did that residency and fellowship, both in behavioral medicine and, you know, was kind of on that trajectory. But I found out about this particular program at the University of Denver. The Sturm Family Foundation had decided to give a very large gift to the University of Denver to start a program in military and veterans mental health. And at the time, there weren't any other real programs across the country at universities that contained components like we have in this program now. And so the idea was that they would teach their graduate psychology students who are all becoming clinical psychologists, they would teach them specialty information about military members and veterans and the things that they would need to know to go and treat those kinds of personnel. And so I saw this job was open and that whoever got this job could go and build this program from scratch and really make an impact on our future clinicians in this in society. And so I thought, you know what, it's a long shot because I'm just a, you know, I'm doing my fellowship here. I'm early career. It's a long shot that I get a job like the faculty director. And lo and behold, I got the job. And on day one, I realized that I had an immense weight on my shoulders in terms of <clears throat> building a program that not only said that it was going to train future psychologists to be able to treat our service members and veterans adequately, but also that did so in a way that was competent and did so in a way that really changed and made people's lives better because anybody can treat a patient, but doing so in a way that's acceptable and that can help veterans and military members thrive, that's a challenge. And to be able to teach our future clinicians to do that, a serious, serious challenge. And so through that job, um, I got hooked in with fight or die. Um, one of my colleagues who happens to be Bryant's wife teaches yoga and does, and actually teaches a lot of veterans yoga. And I was doing a yoga study in my program at the time. And that's how I met her was through a yoga study that I was conducting. And she told me about this group of guys doing this and said, would you know, you know, any way that um, you could get them connected in the Denver community just to find some help. And I said, sure, I'm happy to get them connected and help them sort of drum up some support. And at the same time, I realized this is my chance to work on a really cool project, especially that fit my research interests. And so I said, would you mind if I met with a team? Because I think I might have something to offer here too. And I think we could find a really good partnership together. And that's how I found the team. And so I, I did my version of rolling out the red carpet, which was scheduling them to come and meet me on campus in the nicest room that we have on campus in the library. So that's about as good as you, as you can do to roll out the red carpet at the University of Denver as a professor is to invite someone to this really nice room in the library, which is what I did. And, and I don't know if they were expecting that a 30-something-year-old male who wears shorts and flip-flops was going to be who walks in asking to work work with them. But that's what walked in the room. And and so you can ask Alex and the rest of the guys how they felt about that. But lo and behold, I chatted with them, told them about my experience, what it is I was studying and doing, what my research is focused on, and what I thought I could do to help the team, what I thought they could do to help military and veterans in general, especially in terms of cognitive science. And the rest was history. So I don't know about you, Alex, but I don't know if you guys were expecting somebody who's sort of young and rough and kind of looked a bit like me, but really this has turned out to be a great partnership. I agree. And I, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting you to wear flip flops and shorts to, uh, to the dinner and, and speak, but you spoke very well. So I was, I was happy about that too. 
It was pants and flip flops, but yeah, it was oh, flip flops. Flip flops, flip-flops are yeah. the central theme here that I'm taking away from this whole thing. Oh I, yeah, I'm from North Carolina, so rainbow sandals are the way to go, no matter the no matter the occasion. Yeah, um, let me ask you an anecdotal question here, Jacob, because just for everybody listening, and I, I think I could spitball some of the things, but I'll leave it to you as the professional. What is some of the core differences between treating a regular patient and treating a veteran patient? as far as, you know, the psychological aspects are concerned? That's a really good question. You could, probably, you could ask 100 different psychologists this question. They're going to give you, you 100, 100 different, different answers. answers. Yeah, Absolutely. But I'm training my students to give the same answer every time, um, which is that military members and veterans have a unique skill set. And that doesn't just mean, oh, they were a gunner, oh, they were a radio operator. I don't mean that kind of skill set, not the MOS skill set. Their skill set is leadership. Their skill set is accountability. Their skill set is bravery in the face of danger. The skill set is to know how to directly communicate, to keep people alive, and to handle business appropriately. That's the skill set that all military members and veterans share, not their MOS. That's MOS, all of that stuff's great, but that skill set is what defines service members and veterans from the rest of society and throughout the world. And so that kind of culture is something I try and imbue in my students and help them to understand is they're going to have the same mental health problems as anybody. PTSD, TBI, major depression, suicidality, substance abuse, all these big clinical terms that we talk about and know and see in the media. I got it. You know about it. Everybody knows about it. A decent generalist psychologist can treat all those things. But the way that they show up in our military members and then the way that they change the lives of our military members and veterans is very, very different. And that's because that shared skill set that runs across military veterans and across military members, those kinds of personalities and those kinds of personal characteristics, problems like PTSD and depression and substance abuse show up differently in this population. And so understanding not only about how those sort of disorders show up or why they show up or how to treat them, that's, yes, very important. But understanding how they are caused and understanding why they develop in such a strong service-oriented population, that's something that we're really still learning about and something I'm really trying to teach my students is that military culture has a huge component in the treatment of actual disorders. Alex, when you heard that spiel from Jacob what resonated with you and why was it such a critical match? Well, um, because I've experienced it. I mean, um, you know, I was a leader um, and, you know, let the record show I wasn't a bad one. Um, but I've, I've gone through my own mental struggles. And when I got out of the army, I, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I was I wanted to yell at people walking across the grass I mean, the, the army, the army really, you know, the, the standards, the stand, going back to standards based stuff. I mean, um, that doesn't go away. And, um, so we really do kind of have that, uh, um, I guess that, that rigidity to us to where, you know, we, we are you know, very clear and concise with our, with our actions whenever we have guidance, but when we go when we go off track or we don't you know we don't have commander's intent and all of a sudden we're out here without a mission um you know sometimes guys guys can get lost and you know um i'm not saying that i really experienced being lost when i got out um i i kind of fell into a really good job and i excelled um 
but uh, I still I still deal with you know um, with with different uh, different mental health issues. Um, you know, anxiety, panic, uh, you know, insomnia, those sorts of things. To where I don't calm down. There's always something to do. There's always something on your mind. You know, there's there's always something you forgot. There's, you know, it's always, always like there's someone, you know, something, something that's going to get you, you know, it's always got to be, you know, on your toes. And, you know, that can, I, I guess for me anyway, has been, um, uh, has been kind of my, you know, my issues with, you know, stemming from service. But, um, I mean, if I can I, jump in real quick, what Alex is really highlighting right now is that, is sort of the antithesis of the narrative that we hear in the public and the narrative that we hear in the media, which is that guys like Alex get out and immediately they're having problems. They're immediately homeless. They're immediately have PTSD. They're immediately drunk all the time. They're immediately angry. They get out and within days they're in jail. That's what the media is portraying is that guys and girls are getting out and, and everything goes wrong in a heartbeat. And for some people that's true, but listen to what Alex is saying here. And it's that, he actually was able to get out, get a job pretty quickly, doing pretty well. And it wasn't until later that some issues popped up. And that is the narrative that we're not hearing about a lot in the media is that not everybody gets out and is doing really terribly. Sometimes it takes a while before problems set in. In the case of so many of our Vietnam brothers, it took years, 20, 30 years before problems set in sometimes. And so that's something the media is not talking about. And general conversations at a bar aren't talking about. They're just talking about the guys who are getting out now and not feeling good. But Alex is what he's showing us is that there's so many guys who get out and it takes a while before problems set in. No, that's a great point. And, and honestly, you know, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of that. And unfortunately the media and everything else is, is designed to do what it does. We'll, we'll leave that conversation for another day. But uh, sure. at the end of the day, the bottom line is, is there are people struggling and whatever the circumstances are, the veterans who are struggling need help and deserve our help and certainly deserve our time for all that they've given us. Um, Alex, so you, your first meeting with uh, Jacob, you know, goes well. I mean, how do you guys start to go forward in this partnership and kind of what's the what's the goal or what is what is Alex bringing to the table for fight or die that really, you know, crystallizes uh, this whole thing to come together? Well, so um Essentially, we, we talked about, okay, this is what we are, and then Jacob explained, this is what we are. And then we figured out that, well, this, this is a pretty good fit, regardless of, of, of any tinkering. Um, and then just figured out how we can highlight each other's, um, you know, each other's programs, essentially, and then make it into one. And um, then how do we affect as many people as possible? And that's, that's both of our goals, right? I mean, we want to affect as many people as possible through this um, through, through the message that we're bringing to the table and, and the project itso itself. I mean, we're going to put four new guys in a boat or girls, mind you, or, you know, amputees, you know, we, uh, we, we draw no lines here. If you're a veteran, give us a shout and we're going to put four new people in a boat every year and they can then carry that torch forward. Um, in turn, what that, what that does is, I mean, it creates. Uh, oh, so this isn't a, this isn't a one-time thing. You're going to do this. You're going you're going to annually. You're going to get four people to do to do this race or this this run. Absolutely, we okay. already have interest. We, we, we've already got our uh, our twenty. Uh, we've already got uh, our twenty twenty skipper. Uh, his name's, name's John Wright. He's a, he's a marine. 
Uh, and uh, he's, a, he's a physical beast. He'll, he'll get it. Uh, but you know, he's already volunteered for it. We've got, we've got numerous volunteers that ever, that, that have already, um, already contacted us and shown interest in, in, in actually doing the race, um, itself. So, you know, this is not going to be a one-off project, like I said earlier. And, um, you know, what that does for Jacob's program and veterans as a whole that need, need help is, you know, we, we publicize this. We get this out there. A lot of people don't know about this already. And it, I think it'll catch fire. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to change lives through this. No, I don't doubt it. I just, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the fact that you've already started recruiting for future years is incredibly impressive uh, and that people want to sign up and do this. What's the training for this like? So, um, as far as on a rowing machine, since our, our boat, actually our boat just took paint last night. Uh, it will be painted as an A-10 Warthog when it's all complete, set and done. But what kind of boat is it? Is it just like a canoe? Like, what are we talking here? Uh, I mean, this is a canoe. This is a, this is a spaceship built for the water. Okay. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, I mean, we have, it's 28 feet, uh, in length, about five, five feet in width, uh, six feet from the top of the keel to the birthing. Um, we have, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of bells and whistles in this thing. So GPS, uh, Iridium phones, Iridium, uh, Iridium Go, you know, um, I mean, you name it, we got as far as common. Who made the boat? All that. Uh, Spin drift rowing out of Port Townsend, Washington. Um, And both of these young ladies have uh, have made this crossing before. Um, So they're they're very familiar with with the with the stresses on the on the boat, uh, uh, on the on the actual um, uh, vessel itself. And, um, you know, kind of what uh, what we need, what what we need to purchase, what the best items are for this particular crossing. So we've, we've kind of lucked out and it was big for us to have as many things as we could on the boat American made. Um, so there's only two boats that are going to be from Spindrift in this race. Everything else is essentially built from uh, Rannick Adventure. So we wanted to bring America to the table here, right? So sure. we went with uh, an American company. Um, and I'll tell you, the boat looks great. It looks great. Um, so we'll, we'll get you some pictures over of it. No, I mean, listen, and for those wondering, it's 3000 miles, 50 days, uh, obviously the four of you and a hundred percent self-sustained. And it's a transatlantic race that goes from La Gomera, Canary Islands to Antigua, West Indies. I mean, that's just, that's unreal. <laughs> that, that's, that's all correct. Um, now the, the, we're, we're, pa- we're packing for, uh, you know, for the, for the 50, 60 days, um, you know, obviously better to, to have and not need than need not have. Jacob has a number for you. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the, what the numbers were. There were, there were fractional strokes involved, but, uh, given the, um, or the amount of strokes and the, it's a fractional amount of days that's involved, uh, once, once you did the math on, uh, on, uh, what our training is producing as far as on a rowing machine, what it would take. Um, yeah, some, back, some, back, some back of the napkin math uh, in perfect conditions, put this crew at rowing in about 34 and a half days. And that's with no, no wind, flat water, no flying fish or whales, like perfect weather, 
about 34 and a half days and about 1.6 million strokes per rower. That's what the perfect conditions would, how, that's how that might shake out. It's a hell of a napkin for the record. Um, yeah, it was a 30 minute napkin, but it was, it was, it was <laughs> your degree was in psychology, not math for crying out loud. Um, Correct. And so, and that, those numbers actually, I'm double, getting double checked by an engineer and statistician okay. now, but I think we might be pretty close. Now, now I feel a little <laughs> bit better. All right. But Jacob, so w- when they're doing this undertaking, what is the goal for you? I mean, obviously again, there is a, there's a veteran's goal and there is a, uh, you know, a, an overall arching, you know, creating awareness type thing, raising money, whatever it may be. But from a purely psychological standpoint, what do you hope to get out of this? Yeah, really good question. So uh, my research lab is called the Isolated, Confined, and Extreme Environments Laboratory. And so within my program, what our research is really focused on understanding is how humans not only survive in extreme environments, but how they thrive in extreme environments. Because I don't need to tell you or anybody else listening that every research piece of military and veteran mental health right now is focused on how do we treat a problem after it's already happened. And I am not interested in that. I am interested in treating problems before they happen. I am interested in making stressful events positive. And so what I'm looking at in this crew amongst quite a few things, I'm really wanting to understand, number one, how they do this successfully. And if they have positive growth after doing it, they're voluntarily placing themselves into a very stressful, isolated, confined, and extreme environment. And so most people, when you put them in environments like this, come out with mental health problems or they come out with stress. Now, while that may actually occur here, we have some evidence that shows that occasionally some people who go into these environments not only come out perfectly fine with no negative effects. They actually come out with positive effects and good things happen to them. Their life changes for the positive after being exposed to these environments. That's what I'm interested in is how can we purposefully expose people to environments like this so that when they come out on the other end, good things have occurred and bad things have not occurred. I hope that's making sense. No, it doesn't. And so this has an immense kind of, um, generalizability, especially to our military who are sending into extreme environments all day, every day, into polar scientists when we ask people to go live and work in places like Antarctica or oil rigs. And certainly for our next upcoming manned mission to Mars, this has a lot of applicability to that as well, because we are voluntarily asking people to live and work in these really stressful environments that most people couldn't make it in. And some people come out with growth on the other side. And so I'm trying to figure out how that works. How did they grow? Why did they grow? And how can we train people on the front end, whether it be in the military, whether it be at NASA or just a row across the ocean, how can we train them on the front end to have growth afterwards and not negative outcomes? Yeah, just a row across the Atlantic Ocean. No big deal. Uh, by the way, what was what was the name of your that, that center again that you're running? So we at the University of Denver, we have the Sturm Specialty in Military no, Psychology. No, no, the, 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 my... the, 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 what you just talked about, what your focus was on, the extreme. Yeah, yeah. so we have that program where I'm teaching students, and within that I have a research lab, and it's called the ICE Lab, the Isolated, Confined, and Extreme Environments Laboratory. Okay, I was like, that's a hell of a name. There's got to be an acronym in there somewhere. I mean, you're a military guy, for it, crying out loud. <laughs> well, you know, we've toyed with military isolated confined in extreme environments or just dropping the military right so it'd be mice (laughs) but the problem is every time i've used mice everybody says oh 
you have mice. And I have to always explain, no, no. we don't have mice. <laughs> we have people. So, you know, we're kind of just going with ice at this point. There you go. That works. Um, Alex, let me ask you, what's your biggest fear in this whole thing? Uh, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't put too much thought into the fear yet. I think that'll, I think that'll present itself. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, a lot of us, um, a lot of us have, have I mean, we're going to be scared. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to play like we're not going to be, uh, it's a daunting task, but I, I think uh, to be honest with you, I think we're all looking forward to being, you know, to being in, in that environment and conquering that again. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I've got full confidence. I, I don't, I don't really have a fear about this. I know I'm going to be scared of a 60 foot wave. I know if I see a shark, I'm not going to really like it too much, but as far as as far as what I'm scared of, the worst thing that could possibly happen is us not complete this, and that's not going to happen. And so I, I really don't have a fear. Um, I really don't have a fear about this yet until I see a wave that you know is six stories tall. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then I might be scared, you know. But I'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Jacob, you know? do you maybe have? We'll have a- maybe we'll have flat water and no flying fish, <laughs> and just one point six million strokes. Um, yeah. Jacob, do you have a way to monitor? Uh, you know, biophysically monitor what's going on with them? Yeah, good question. I'm working on the biophysically monitoring thing. Um, Being able to monitor physiological output like heart rate, pulse oxygenation, and things like that in real time is actually really tough considering that they're going to be in the middle of the ocean. Now, while some technology like that exists, it mainly belongs to places like SOCOM, JSOC, NASA. Those organizations have that ability we don't have that ability, at least not at this point. If you have any listeners that want to help us out with that, we'll <laughs> gladly talk to you. But mostly the agencies have abilities like that. Um, but how I'm going to monitor them in real time is they're going to have a tablet computer with them. And there's they're doing a lot of studies while on this boat for me. Um, one of which is being able to test their memory and their cognition every single day to find out is their brain still capable of doing what they need it to do? Are they too sleep deprived to keep going? Can they actually and adequately make decisions based on their sleep deprivation, that kind of thing. But my way of really monitoring them, aside from the kinds of data they're going to be putting into the tablet, is going to be calling me on a satellite phone every day and me asking them some questions. Not only just how are you doing? Is everything going okay? Has anyone killed each other yet? Um, I'm actually going to be giving them some psychological tests over the phone that will allow me to at least be able to kind of have less fears when I go to sleep every night to be able to know that cognitively they're where they need to be and that they can actually continue going. So the kinds of testing I'll be doing with them over the phone is very similar to what doctors do with climbers on Everest when they're testing their cognition in their memory when they're up at very, very high altitude and oxygen deprived. Very similar work to that. Right. Alex, that leads to the question. I didn't even think of it. I don't know why, but um, (laughs) eat, rest, sleep, bathroom cycle like how does this whole thing work the the bathroom cycle we're still having a discussion about that um <laughs> you know it's ongoing we'll let you know um no but we're, we're going to be taking in uh you know roughly six thousand calories a day um you know, we've got wet meals dry meals basically uh um i suppose you can't order in <laughs> well nope. you know by race rules, no. no. I'm sure somebody would love to airdrop. That'd be something. great. That'd be great if Uber Eats just started paddling out to the middle Atlantic Ocean, meet you guys out there. Hey, you go. Here's a cheesesteak. I've had it. <laughs> or Jimmy Buffett's yacht. Just play along, you know. But uh, <laughs> um, no, it's uh, it's it's. I mean, it's wet wet meals, dry meals, um, 
So uh, we're going to have a lot of bars and those sorts of things, protein packs, gels. Um, we desalinate our own water. So we've got uh, a fairly expensive desalinator. Um, and then we have a hand a hand pump desalinator as well. Just What's that, just to take the, the, the ocean water and purify it? Correct. Okay. To turn it into desalinated water, correct, into fresh water. Um, and we're going to need a lot of it. So it's not just for drinking. Um, you know, we're going to have to – uh, we're going to have to bathe in it. Um, so basically getting the, um, getting the salt water off of a salt sores are a huge thing out there. Um, so, I mean, being out there exposed to the elements for so long, you've got to get that salt off your body. Um, otherwise you'll, you know, you start to develop, you know, lesions and whatnot. So we need to make sure that we're, you know, personal hygiene is going to be a big thing out there. I know you're just on the water and whatnot, and people don't think about that, but it's going to be a huge thing when you go to keep everybody healthy um, um, is is personal hygiene. One other thing I I neglected to mention, um, you're doing this in December. Last time I checked, the Atlantic Ocean in December isn't balmy (laughs) temperature-wise. Well, so it's it's kind of the calmest time along this route. Um, we're we're heading around from uh, from Lagomera around the northwest portion of Africa, and then into the Caribbean, uh, kind of along the stream there, or in the stream actually. But uh, if you think about it, in December the sun is then at the lowest point in the southern hemisphere, or getting around there, right? So you don't have the turbulent, warm and cold water hitting each other like they kind of are right about now. And okay. on that on that line, you know, does that make sense? It does. It's, that's why I didn't so, join the Navy because I had absolutely no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I, didn't I know was in the Navy and I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about either. So I missed uh, Earth science that day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know anything about much of this either, and so I had to, I just start asking a lot of questions. Well, I, I guess. Uh... I mean, the other three guys are looking to you, right? Alex as the skipper of this whole thing to, to have all this information, or is this like a shared kind of, um, you know, mental thing where you all have to understand each other's jobs and everything else? Well, so the way we've approached that um, is that we, so we have we have all we we, we have all put in an enormous amount of work in this. We all we're all leaders as well, and. Uh, we all we all have a skill set to get that crew across all of us so we're really relying on one another i mean this is more of a this is more of a team than it is you know a oh well skip says this i guess you got to go swap the poop deck type thing you know like um this is more of a team right uh now when it comes down to final call if somebody has you know really severe um dehydration or seasickness or, or something like that where we're looking at you know, a, a medical emergency with this guy is laying on his back and, you know, he's been taking bags for days and, um, you know, still can't function. And he's telling me he's okay. Well, no one wants to make that call, but that's my responsibility. And I hope I, I don't have to make that call. Um, but those types of things, you know, so I'll be, I'll be in charge of, um, working with the race coordinators as far as our positioning, uh, and, and, you know, Kind of, kind of coordinating where we're at with them, um, coordinating with people back home. But we all kind of share each other's jobs. I mean, it's. Um, I, I think it's going to bring us more success than anything. I mean, we we all know everything about this race and what we're doing, and um, this upcoming training event in Mobile, Alabama, is really going to. I think is really going to uh, 
um, going to help us out as far as, you know, how we operate out there um, as, as a team, you know? So, no, I don't, I don't see this as a, uh, you know, as a superior inferior relationship at all. Uh, if anything, it's, it's, it's everything but that uh, I see this as a, as a team. Jacob, uh, well, I may not have been paying attention to other science. I paid attention in biology and chemistry, knowing that in order for you to, to gain anything from these guys, you have to have a baseline, right? You have to figure out what their starting point is to see where they go and, and how high or how low they go from there. So what is the baseline for this? Are you monitoring them now as well? Are you sitting with them in these meetings and talking through this or, or are you just waiting oh, to yeah. race day? Yeah. So for about the past six months, I've been joining them on their weekly meetings. We do weekly meetings via teleconference or via zoom technology. So we're just essentially all talking to each other via the computer and that happens most Sunday nights at this point. And so that's how most business is getting conducted on the team. And majority of the time, it's just me just watching and listening and observing and writing down notes. And so I've been watching just behavior and some, you know, helping with observations and some stressors along the way. But we did get some baseline research already. One of the things we've done uh, is we recently have submitted an article for publication on the values that these guys all share. Uh, and understanding why and where those values came from to do something so extreme like this. But also I brought them into the lab at the University of Denver. They all came in from different parts of the country where they live and I had them sit, each of them sit down with one of my students for about seven hours. And one of my students, graduate students would sit with them and gave them a battery of psychological tests that included things like IQ, personality, achievement, um, performance and cognition, all of these kinds of tests that we test in psychology had each of them go through a big battery of these. And so I've got data from that. I've got data from being in their meetings. And um, every time I talk to them, I'm gathering data. Now, what Alex just briefly mentioned was that in a few weeks, we're going to be heading down to Mobile, Alabama, which is where essentially spring training is going to occur, where we get to see the boat, get on the boat, and actually row it around for the first time in the Gulf of Mexico. And so a lot of my baseline testing of things like memory, cognition, and physiological measures like heart rate and pulse oxygenation, those kinds of things, I'll get those baseline tests down there, not only before they get on the boat the first time, but after they've done a, their first few rows in relatively non-stressful water um, in, in relatively secure, safe conditions. That'll provide me with the rest of the baseline data that I need before the actual trip itself. I mean, I'll let you answer first, Jacob, as the uh, medical professional, but Alex, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, is there anything that would deem them unfit for this event? Yeah. Um, so certainly there, a lot of red flags could pop up that could deem them unfit. A lot of your listeners and the, you yourself understand that in at least in the special operations community within the military, every special operations forces operator goes through something called assessment and selection. And that may look different in the army than it does in the Navy or in the air force. Um, but in assessment and selection, you're really looking at a lot of candidates as a psychologist, you're looking at a lot of candidates and trying to screen in who can do a good job here and who's not going to do a good job and who's going to be a safety risk. Now, as a psychologist, when I would approach a mission like this, I would like to do assessment and selection. I'd like to see a bunch of people volunteering so that I could then figure out who is fit and who is not fit to do a mission like this. And in special operations or in NASA, that's exactly what we do. But these guys came to me having already selected themselves. So I only get to do half of it, which is the assessment portion. And so since they selected themselves, I'm working with what I've got, which is these four guys. But it does turn out that all four of them 
are very high functioning, very intelligent individuals who are really, really capable and don't have the red flags we might see in somebody that we would not going want going on a mission like this. So as it turns out, um, we've got four relatively capable guys, but some red flags that could pop up that we'd be looking for are things like inability to control your anger or inability to um, put plans in place to have your family function while you're gone. These guys could be gone for months at a time, depending on how long this actually goes. Um, looking for things like substance abuse history or um, problems with cognition and understanding because one of the biggest stressors they're going to face is sleep deprivation. So if I've got a guy who is not doing well with their cognition or understanding just in the laboratory while everything's calm and they're in the air conditioning, I know that after 10 days of barely any sleep in the heat, in the sun with potential salt sores, they are really not going to be doing well. And so I'm looking for people who are very physically and mentally fit but also who have the capability to withstand these kinds of extreme conditions. I hope that's making sense. No, it makes total sense. Alex, what's been the hardest part about preparing for this? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, uh, it's, this is going to sound crazy. It's, it's been fundraising. Um, it, it, it has been, it's been, it's been fundraising because nobody in, nobody in the, in the United States has ever heard about people rowing the Atlantic ocean, um, you know, from Spain to the Caribbean. Um, so telling somebody you're, you're going to be rowing the, the ocean and you're doing this as part of a, uh, a project for a charitable organization to support, you know, the STERM specialty in military psychology out of the university of Denver. Um, they, they really don't have anything to go on unless we get out here on programs like this, but, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's been a hard, a hard start as far as, uh, as far as fundraising and, and, and getting, getting everything in line um, with respect to equipment and, you know, travel and, and those sorts of things. I mean, we've kind of been you know, waiting on a lot of funding and that being said, you know, we're still, uh, we need this year, we still need a good hundred thousand dollars to make this entirely successful to include shipping our stuff back from the, back from Antigua to the States and then shipping that from, um, you know, from the port to where it's, where we're going to lay the boat and store the equipment, uh, our hotel stays in Antigua, um, you know, the, the, you know, food, air, uh, airlines to and from where we're, where we're going, those sorts of things, uh, on, on the, on the tail end. And then, and then tying up some of the last expenses we have right now, um, and getting some of this stuff over, the, over here. So, um, you know, fundraising, I think, and, and, and just, um, just, I guess, marketing and advertising, if you want to you know, put it that way. But that, that's been kind of the toughest thing in preparing. If if all of that was taken care of, which it will be for the next team, then all you have to do is concentrate on rowing and training. And and your mind doesn't have to be in a million places. And so uh, and and Jacob will will have a. Um, you know, have, have more to more more time to to gather what he wants to do for the next team. So I'm sure I'm sure he's already preparing for that. But um, yeah, just just getting getting everything ready to go has been probably the uh, the most difficult part. Well, that's uh... yeah, Alex. Alex is speaking to the fundraising aspect, and you know, honestly, all you yourself know, Alex know the listener of your, listeners of your podcast know how important the military is and they know about how great it is to give to veterans causes and to to work with military and veteran causes to help improve this community but honestly out there in the greater united states 
people are saturated with the military veteran story. It is not sexy to give your money to military veteran causes anymore. That That's five years ago, seven years ago. It's just not sexy to do that anymore. Everybody's moved on. People have hit saturation because the wars are still ongoing in Iraq and Afghanistan and other countries too. And no one tunes into that on TV anymore. This is not 2004 and 2005 when Alex and I were really junior and just taking orders and it was all over television anymore. Military veteran stuff is just kind of pushed into the background now. And so it's not sexy to give to this anymore. Members of your community, I'm sure, back so many veteran causes, but it's so hard to really engage the public in this stuff because as cool as it sounds, this is not where they want to put their money anymore. And I think that's really unfortunate that as a society and as a country, we've really started to tune out our military. It's an excellent point, but uh, Alex, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people how they can donate, how they can help out, where they can go, because, you know, part of what we do here is, is to get those veterans organizations out there. You know, I mean, our hope at the hazard ground is to create a, a tighter, more, well-known, well-knit veterans community. And, and uh, we certainly want to help out every, wherever we can. And veterans listening, you know, the one thing I've always said is that there are so many veterans organizations out there because we do the one thing we only know how to do, and that's take care of each other, right? Because that's what we learned. That, 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 that was ingrained in us from the first day of basic or the first day you put on a uniform was you take care of your buddy. And so, you know, that, that's our hope here at the Hazard Ground. But tell everybody how they can donate and how they could be, be a part of this. Right. And thank you. And I think that actually goes to Jacob's point earlier about one of the skills we learned. We all absolutely do that. So, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for making that point again. That's that's 100 percent true. Um, so you can you can find us at www.usvetrow.org. Uh, usvetrow, as it sounds, .org. I'm not going to make it painful and spell that phonetically. Um and then you can also find us at, on Instagram as uh, Fight or Die, of course, you know hashtag Fight or Die, or uh, Facebook just Fight or Die, and it's O A R uh, for boats. So um, we like puns, but um, <laughs> yeah, O A R Fight or Die, um, and you can Google us, and we we actually uh, we actually have have hits on Google from uh, previous uh, interviews that we had we have done. Bo did one. Um, last year um there's some other tv clips and whatnot from uh, from mobile alabama and evansville indiana and denver number nine and um so you, you know we, you can find us on google now matter of fact so it's kind of it's kind of cool but usvetroad.org would be the best place to find a donate donate button and uh finally uh, jacob you know i don't know if there's a way that you need help or assistance in this but i mean is there anything else that you need to kind of uh put a ribbon on no, you know, if you um, if you want to check out the work we're doing at the University of Denver, you can check us out on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at Military Psych, and all the work that comes out of our program. It's not my personal Twitter. It's just a program-specific Twitter that I run. You can check out our work there or check us out on the, DU, on the University of Denver website. But, you know, I just really have to give it to these guys and the effort that they're putting in. This is not a one-time race. This is not a, you know, get some money, do a thing you know, get some pats on the back and move on with the rest of your life. These guys are not only doing something extreme, they're doing something sustainable. They're building an organization that's going to serve military members and veterans from all walks of life. 
for years to come. And I think that's something that I'm proud of. That's something this team is proud of. And that's something our community of military members and veterans should be proud of is that these guys are doing something great and they're building a community. They are building an organization that's going to continue to serve our brothers and sisters for years to come. And then finally, Alex, is there a way that people can monitor you guys while you're out on the ocean going across? I mean, you do posting updates or anything like that along the way? So we will be posting updates from time to time. Um, but the best way to, to go about that would, would be to go to AtlanticCampaigns.com. And uh, they will have a tracker of every boat on there. So, um, you know, we're, uh, we're boat number zero. Uh, so just find us on there and uh, you can watch us, watch us come across to AtlanticCampaigns.com. And you guys are, do you know your exact leave date yet? I know it's December of this year, 2018, but do you know the exact start date? Yes, it'll be December 12th. So you're going to miss Christmas. Well, and New Year's. Well, they're not, they're not going to miss Christmas or well, New Year's. They're going to have Christmas, just like we all did when we were deployed. Yes. They're going to have Christmas and New Year's out there on the water. So, so it'll be a bit of a party. What, do you have a plan for you know Christmas and New Year's to celebrate while you're on the water or just stay alive? Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about that, but... Um, that's something we should definitely tackle. Yeah. I mean, you know, th- <laughs> Doc, I thought about it too much. As you would understand, you know, relieving some priority. of that stress with celebration might be good for their <laughs> mental state. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, you, you bring up a very good point. Yeah. This, <laughs> that, that kind of stress relief in a, in a taste of home, a lot of times can be extremely protective for people in environments like this. That's a really great point. Well, I am just, uh, I'm in awe of what you're about to undertake, uh, Alex. I'm in awe of, you know, what the four of you are going to do, uh, you know, the cause obviously speaks for itself. But, you know, the challenge that, that, that you're doing is unlike anything that we've had anybody do on this podcast. And so uh, certainly uh, best of luck. Uh, wish you continued health and success throughout your training. And uh, I agree with you. I have no doubt that uh, you guys won't finish this thing. What kind of condition you'll be in when it's all said and done is a, <laughs> is a probably a different discussion. But I have no doubt that uh, you guys and the four of you in that boat will be uh, on the other side of the Atlantic um, standing there tall and proud and representing all of us for doing so. And of course, Dr. Jacob Hyde, I mean, you know, uh, what you're doing in the big picture is immense to all of us. And, and as you said, this isn't just a one-time thing. This is about growing uh, in several different ways and, and trying to get to a problem before it becomes a problem. And I think that in and of itself is something that's incredibly, incredibly uh, valuable to all of us. So uh, for that, gentlemen, I'll leave you guys with any final words. If you want to say anything one more time, please uh, let us know. And, and I'm, I thank you guys so much for being here. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us on. And really, the, the only thing that I would have to say is to follow us, get involved with this. It, it's not not just veterans. It's not just civilians. Um, you know, we, we all have to be involved in, in, in this. And, you know, we, we plan to be a big part of, of changing veterans lives through mental health. But it takes conversation to have and it takes attention. So that's really all I have. Just um Anybody out there that's on the fence, I guess, that wouldn't be listening to you. But if they are, we've all got to be involved, civilians and veterans alike. And so we got to keep keep having this conversation. And I appreciate, you ha- I appreciate you having me on as well. I would just – I'd leave your listeners with this, that if, if you're a military member or a veteran and you're out there struggling, realize that no matter what's going on in your life, you can get around it. You can get over it. You can improvise, adapt, and overcome, and you can make your life whatever you want it to be. You can have a family. You can have a job. You can row across the ocean. You can have a good night's sleep and a good day tomorrow. 
you can choose to do that and you can find a way around it, fight or die. Alex Evans, Dr. Jacob Hyde, thank you guys so much for being part of the Hazard Ground and best of luck, Alex. Thanks so much, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.